So this week is actually the continuation of last week. Uh, not everybody can come out and brave the snowstorm of uh, last week, so we kind of divided up last week's message into two parts, and this week is the continuation of that part, and so we're going to backtrack a little bit to last week because it's important uh, to what we're doing this week. <clears throat> so for those of you that are here for the first time, we are into week 20 of a journey through the book of Acts. One of the things that I love to do and part of the way I teach is I just love to teach through scripture. So we picked up the book of Acts some 20-ish weeks ago and, and we've just kind of begun to march through it. The good news is today we are exactly almost to the to the verse one-third of the way through it. All right, so that's 20. We may be 60 weeks in. So, um, But the great thing is, is that we've made it through a, a remarkable part of history and we've come up to this event, um, the, the life-changing moment in Saul's life, Paul's life, that is going to change the entire trajectory of church history. And so from this point forward in history, things change. All right. So if you've been with us for a while, you kind of know where we are. Let me give you a quick little background because it's been a wild couple of weeks uh, in terms of church history of what we've looked at. So the church has taken root in, in Jerusalem. It's kind of exploded. In fact, thousands and thousands of people have come to surrender their life to Jesus Christ as, as their Lord and Savior. And the local religious leaders are, are kind of at arms. They're so frustrated because Jesus threatens their very way of life. It threatens the hierarchical system that puts these religious leaders in a place of power. And they can't stand the fact that this little group of ragtag, uneducated believers are proclaiming this resurrected Christ and lives are being changed. Their way of life is being threatened. And so they seize these believers and they tell them to never talk about Jesus. In fact, we see them arrest several of the apostles and beat them and, and do all kinds of humiliating things to them and tell them never to talk about Jesus again. Yet we see the apostles continue to do that. and God continues to bless them. And so they raise up a bunch of leaders, and one of these leaders is by the name of, of Stephen. And Stephen is this guy that is sort of well-respected, and he's doing what he was called to do, which is lead and teach about Jesus. And the religious leader sees him, and they say, look, we've told you guys you can never talk about Jesus again. And so Stephen launches into this incredible speech, and he begins to tell these Jewish religious leaders that they've missed the entire point of God's call, not only on their life, but of all of history. And that they are ultimately on the wrong side of God. And these religious leaders freak out. And they see Stephen in the middle of town. And they basically stone him to death. They get this angry mob, gets riled up. They drag Stephen outside from the city center all the way outside of town. And they kill him. And we learn in the book of Acts that on that day, this incredible persecution breaks out. Right, The church is now under this heavy persecution. And they take these believers, all except the apostles, and they spread them all over through Judea and Samaria. The whole of the kind of surrounding area, trying to decentralize this movement of Christians. They spread them all around, right? And they hoped in doing that, that Christianity will ultimately just go away. Because in those days, their communication was not done via email or phone. It, you had to be with somebody, right? Or you had to write letters and send them on the back of like a camel or whatever. It took forever. So spreading of information was difficult, right? And so they thought by decentralizing this movement, spreading them around, it would take it away, and so they did just that. And at the helm of this, at the lead of this, was a young guy by the name of Saul, or Paul, who we've talked about quite a bit. He was an up-and-coming religious leader. He was one of the most educated people in all of uh, Judaism, and he was in charge of this. And he was most likely jockeying for a higher position that would ultimately made, may lead him to the position of high priest. And so he took it on himself 
to go door to door and to begin to kill or arrest and have killed any Christians that were left in the area. That was his whole goal. He was going to go town to town as this persecution broke out and arrest and ultimately have tried for their very lives these Christians. So a few weeks ago, we saw this scattering of Christians, and we met a guy by the name of Philip, who was another leader in the church that had been sent to Samaria. He was dropped off in that area that none of the Jewish people ever wanted to go to because they were a a mixed race of people, and there's a lot of background history there, but the Jewish people couldn't stand them. And yet, here Philip finds himself in the middle of this country, this whole region, and the gospel begins to thrive, and Philip begins to preach the gospel. And hundreds and hundreds of people come to know Christ, and it says that there's great joy in the city, and people are healed and all these kind of things. And in the middle of that, God calls Philip out. He says, listen, I want you to go to the desert road that leads down to Gaza. And we see Philip following the Lord's call all the way down to this desert road that leads to a city that doesn't exist anymore in the middle of nowhere. And he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, and we see God use him in this incredible way. And this eunuch comes to know Christ, and he's baptized, and we go through all that, right? And we see the gospel begin to continue to flourish, even though the hands of opposition were trying to thwart it or discourage it, right? And so... That's where we've kind of been. And then last week, we shifted gears a little bit, and we were introduced again to Saul on this personal mission, this vendetta, if you will, to go and capture all these Christians. So while this is all taking place in Samaria and the surrounding areas, Saul is armed with a letter from the high priests and a whole group of guys that are going around town to town, door door to door, to arrest these Christians, right? And so here's what we find. We find Saul on the road with a letter from the high priest headed to a town called Damascus, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a moment, to go and basically arrest anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. And as he's going down this road, the story tells us this this incredible bright light flashes and Saul falls face to the ground. Later on in the book of Acts, he's going to tell King Agrippa the same story. He's going to say that the light was brighter than the shining of like a thousand suns. It was this light from heaven, this incredible explosion. And Saul goes blind, and he cries out, and he says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus speaks to him out of, out of the sort of nothingness, and he says, this is Jesus whom you're persecuting. Well, all of Paul's companions, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. And Jesus says, Saul, listen, get up, and you're going to go into the town, and you are going to wait for me. And so here comes Saul, led by his companions, right? He once was leading these guys. Now he's being led by them into the town of Damascus, and he is rendered blind. And what we talked about last week was how how our plans are often so driven by our own desire for control, our own desire for ourselves. And God wants to interrupt our plans, and his plans are always better than ours. And we talked about what it means to surrender control and trusting the Lord, and that's kind of where we went last week. What we're going to pick up on this week are... Right at the end of that movement where Paul is left blind, sitting in the middle of this city, surrounded by his friends, just waiting on the Lord. Not knowing what's going to happen, what's coming next, is he ever going to see again, is he going to die? He has no idea, but he is sitting there waiting on the Lord. And we're going to pick up on the rest of that story this morning. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 9, and we'll be in verse 10, and we'll continue that story. So if you've got one, great. If not, there's one right next to you somewhere in that row or share with a friend. I want you to read along with us all the time. I want you to bring your Bible, church, right? We're going to be in it every week. If we're ever not in it, just get up and leave. That's my promise. Like if we don't teach from it, just go go find a church that will. We always will be in this thing. So bring it. Um, Don't worry about it being cool or uncool. I got one. So um, can't get any cooler than that. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for <clears throat> all of that history that ultimately brings us, me, every person in this room into your story. God, you are moving at that point in history that will take the gospel into the world outside of Jerusalem into other areas that ultimately some 2,000 years later will find its way by your incredible sovereign hand into our lives. And that God, the gospel we have heard is because of what is transpiring in history right now. And God, we are grateful that you are drawing us into your presence. We're grateful for what you're doing in our lives this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning, just to, to teach you something about his character and about who he is. Just ask God to teach your heart. someone beside you, uh, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name, as we do this each week, I invite you to pray for someone to remember that this thing is not just about you, be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would um, reveal truth to us. God, we know that we don't discover you, uh, we don't learn truth, you reveal truth, and so God, teach our hearts that as we open your word. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 9, verse 10. We're picking up right in that moment, right, where Paul is essentially waiting. And I'll go back and forth calling him Saul and Paul. It's really the same guy. We've talked about that. So um, <clears throat> we're going to pick up on that, that moment. Paul is waiting in Damascus for three days. He's blind and he hasn't had anything to eat or drink. This is where we pick up. Verse 10. So in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Saul is waiting in Damascus. He is led by the hand by his companions. He is waiting there, and he is blind. He has eaten nothing, right? And the Lord appears to this disciple named Ananias, who we know nothing else about. Literally, we know nothing about Ananias. He's mentioned only one other time in Scripture, in Acts 22, where Paul is recalling this exact same story, and he's using his name. But outside of that, Ananias is an unknown figure. He's just a disciple, follower of Christ, living in this really strategic city called Damascus. And Damascus was an important city. It was actually a, a kind of a central commercial hub. It was literally an oasis in the desert. Two rivers fed into it. 
and therefore it had a lot of life and a lot of vegetation, a lot of water, and caravans from all over the known world would pass through Damascus on their way all the way up to Persia and Syria, all right? So it was an incredibly important city, and the reason it was important to Saul was because if Christianity made its way into Damascus, it would certainly make its way out to all the known world. Because those caravans traveled and as people met Christ, they would take this new belief in Jesus, this new religion that was springing up, and they would spread it all over the known world. And so Saul, knowing that, if he could solve this problem from Damascus moving forward, if he went there and shut down Christianity in Damascus, there's no way it could spread all around. And so Saul, very strategically, was headed to that city when God rendered him blind on that road, and now he sits blind without having eaten, just waiting. Right? And God appears to this relatively unknown person in a dream and gives Ananias some very specific instructions. Right? He says, listen, here's what you're going to do. You are going to go to the house of Judas. He lives on Straight Street. Right? Literally, it's a street that runs straight through town. That's why it was called Straight Street. It ran from top to bottom. In fact, if you go to the city of Damascus today, Straight Street still exists. It's still there. It ran all the way through town. You're going to go to this guy's house named Judas. And, and there, there is a man... Saul from Tarsus, right, who has been praying and waiting, and I have appeared to him in a dream, and I have told him that a guy named Ananias, that's you, is going to be coming, and you're going to lay hands on him, and you're going to restore his sight, and you are going to baptize him and give him the Holy Spirit, basically. These incredibly clear instructions. Now, if you notice from this point forward or backwards, most of God's instructions to people have been really vague, right? He shows up in Philip's life, and he says, hey, Philip, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the desert road that leads to Gaza. And that was it. That was the only instruction. Yet God is incredibly specific to Ananias, right? And he gives him this very specific call. You're going to go and lay your hands. And Ananias says, hey, um, God, so listen, that's incredible. Thank you for the specific instruction. I'm really grateful for that. But I've heard about this guy, Saul. Do you know, God, that he is coming with a letter from the high priest and all the harm that he has done to your saints? Have you kind of heard this? Because I've heard a lot about this guy, right? As if... God needed a reminder of who Saul was. And for the first time here, we see the word saints used, right? And the the word saints is a really important word because it doesn't mean what the Catholic Church and some other high kind of churches have turned that word into. The word saint really here in the Greek means separated ones, holy ones. And the word holy is not perfect. It means separated, set apart. We've talked about that quite a bit before. But the idea here is that saints are ones that have been separated by God through Christ from the rest of the world. Meaning they are the called out ones. That anyone who is a follower of Christ has been separated from the world. Right? We are different and we are called to God's holy purpose. So saint here simply means the harm that he has done to everyone who calls upon your name. To all those believers. He says, God, have you not heard what is unfolding? And God's word to Ananias is, go, with an exclamation point. In other words, quiet, go, right? I have actually going to do something pretty significant with this guy. He is my chosen instrument to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, my name, to the Gentiles and their kings and to Jerusalem. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, right? Very clear instructions for Ananias. So Ananias does just that. God says go, and Ananias doesn't argue a second time. He gets up and he goes, and he shows up at this guy's house, and he walks in, and he looks at this Saul from Tarsus. And he says, Brother Saul, which is unbelievable. 
And there's a whole message wrapped up in that greeting in itself. I mean, this is Saul, who was there when Stephen was literally murdered, who has been arresting and persecuting Christians all over the known area at that time. Most likely was at the, responsible for the death of people that Ananias knew, or even people in Ananias' family. And yet he walks into this house, and he says, Brother Saul. He heard God's call on his life, and he calls him Brother Saul. He says, listen, right? God has sent me to basically restore your sight. And he lays his hands on him, and it says immediately something like scales fell, fell from his eyes. The Greek word there for that, that idea of scales is the same word that's used for eggshells, fish scales, and the rinds of fruit. So some kind of physical covering that God had literally blinded Saul with fell from his eyes. Everyone's there watching it. They fall from his eyes, and he begins to see again. And he was baptized, right? And he begins to eat and drink food again. And from this moment in time, the entire trajectory of the church changes because Saul's life becomes an instrument for God, and he becomes outside of Jesus Christ himself, probably the most important figure in all of human history. He writes two-thirds of the New Testament and takes the gospel to the entire known world. Everything changes at this moment. So as I was looking through this whole text, 9 to 19, this encounter that Saul has on the road to Damascus, what Ananias was called to, what is unfolding here, what I, what I discovered in the middle of this, is there are some really important theological truths that I think we should probably hang on to because they, they will affect how we understand and see our own Christian lives. So I thought this morning, instead of um, trying to take this specific encounter and, and break it down, I, I want to lift up a couple of really important truths that I don't want you to miss in this, all right? Some deeper theological things that are really important that, that I hope will shape our understanding of who God is and what he desires for our life. I'm going to do it relatively quickly because... We, we have communion, some other things going on this morning. But I, I want you to hear these things because they're really important, all right? The first one is this, is that I want you to understand the significance of divine initiative and salvation. So sounds like quite a mouthful, but think about it for a moment. The significance of divine initiative and salvation. Scripture is incredibly clear. God takes the initiative with humanity. Faith and salvation are gifts from God. They are not discoveries of our human mind, right? I've talked about this before. These are not movements that we get ourselves to where we discover God and enter into salvation on our own. All through scripture, God takes initiative with humanity and he draws them to himself. Faith and salvation are gifts that are given, not things that we discover. In our own selfish, me-driven lives, kind of pursuing our own goals, we don't wind up on a moralistic stance that says, somehow I discover that I need God and so I am going to go to him and I'm going to fix my life. God, in his holiness, and his perfection, draws humanity into himself. He takes the initiative because we are absolutely and totally powerless to come to him. The only thing we are capable of is sinfulness. We are powerless to come to God, and so God, in his own divine initiative, steps into humanity and draws us to himself. There's a ton of evidence for this in Scripture, but my favorite comes out of John 6, where Jesus said, No one comes to the Father, Right? Unless he who sent me draws them, and I will be the one that raises them up on the last day. John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, except God draws them, right? And I will be the one that lifts them up. This idea is this, we don't discover our way to God. 
We don't finally get our lives together and clean it up enough to where we can show back up and say, God, look, I look somewhat presentable. God draws us to himself. Now, the reason this is really important is because it's going to demonstrate God's absolute and total control over humanity and over all of creation. All right? This is what's happening in Saul's life. Saul's on a mission to radically eradicate all of Christianity. And God shows up in the middle of his life and does not give Saul much of a choice, right? He shows up and in this blinding flash of powerful, unbelievable light, knocks Saul to the ground, blinds him, right? And then basically takes the initiative to say, I have chosen you. You are my instrument and I will use you to take the gospel talk about this a lot because it is super important because most of us think that if we just clean up our lives enough, if we just patch up a few things, if we just quit doing this or that or have a little bit more faith or pray a little more, eventually our uneasiness and our unsteadiness or our passionless lives will somehow become more spiritual and we will feel better about what we're doing. All of it is on me and what I can do to bring myself closer to God. And it's a lie. You will never bring yourself any closer, not even one millimeter, one spiritual millimeter closer to God. God draws humanity. So what does that mean? Well, it tells us that our number one goal as followers of Christ should be to surrender our lives, die to ourselves, right? And say, God, draw me in, bring me in, reveal yourself to me. God is not the result of our human discovery. This is exactly what we see unfolding here. Divine initiative. God takes that movement and salvation and he draws you to himself. God is in absolute and total control. This is going to make a little bit more sense in a minute. Absolute and total control over all humanity and all creation. Nothing is outside of his control. So the first thing I want you to understand is this. There is a significance in understanding God's initiative, divine initiative in salvation and in faith. So the point is, quit trying so hard to rectify in your own mind your sin, your struggle, your stuff with who God is to draw yourself just a little bit closer. Die to yourself, surrender, and ask God to draw you. Same theological concept. Like, you will never lead anyone to Jesus. I've talked about this before, too. It's a terrible theological statement. I led so-and-so to Christ. You didn't do anything. God just allowed you to be present, right? God does the drawing. God can use you in any way he chooses, but you certainly didn't do anything to draw anyone in spiritually. Okay, so divine initiative. The second thing I want you to see is this. God chooses and calls both Ananias and Saul. Now, that may sound relatively simple, and it kind of is, but think about their lives for a minute. There are no two more polar opposite people that we have paired together in Scripture, right, outside of maybe Jesus and the sinful woman or Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But when you take these two guys, they are completely and totally polar opposites in charge of their life. You have Saul, this famous, up-and-coming, completely well-educated guy who was well-known and soon to be the most important person in history outside of Jesus himself, on a mission with a letter from the high priest, complete and total authority to eradicate these Christians. And then you've got Ananias, a relatively and virtually unknown person who doesn't have a story or a history for us to even know. We just simply know that he was a follower of Christ, right? And that God called him to be used by him. They are completely and totally different people. 
Paul walking on the road to Damascus, God shows up in his life and has a specific call on him and actually calls him his chosen vessel, right? We know God's call on Saul's life. He is my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentile, their kings, and the Jews and, and the people in Jerusalem, right? Basically the known world. That is God's call. He's my chosen vessel. Well, Ananias is also God's chosen vessel. He is God's chosen vessel to go and take the gospel essentially to Saul. So which one is more important, right? Which one has a bigger role in history? Well, at first glance, we may say, of course, it's, it's Saul, right? I mean, he goes on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. I mean, he is, in fact, the face of Christianity, for the most part, outside of Jesus. And you look at Ananias' life, and you say, but Ananias was called to take the gospel and lay his hands on the most dangerous person on the planet in those days and physically touch him. He was God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to Saul. My point is this. Neither of these men had an option in their destiny. They did not self-select their call. God showed up, radically interrupted their lives, and had a call in their lives and said, you are my chosen instrument to do this. They didn't get to pick or choose. Ananias tried to actually argue with God and say, look, I don't think you get it, Lord. This guy's dangerous. And God says, go. And Ananias does just that. But both men were called by God to participate in God's plan for God's glory and for his purpose. God had a plan and a purpose for each of their lives. God has a plan and a strategic purpose for your life to bring about his glory, right? God has called you. Bible is very clear about that. You learned that just a second ago. You did not find your way to him. You did not choose your own salvation. God has taken initiative with you, and he has a plan for your life. Maybe you are called to end up being like Saul, changing the entire world. Maybe you're called to be like Ananias and just change one single life that will then change the entire world. We don't get to decide. And most of us spend the majority of our time wrestling with God over what he's calling us to, feeling empty and unhappy because somehow our plan, our call, our desire is not fitting with what we want to do. But God has this incredible purpose for you. And you know what it is? It's to surrender your will to his will. The entire purpose of the Christian life is to surrender your desire to the desire of the Lord. That's it. To say, God, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will. Yeah, we'll put up arguments like Saul does, and he'll go on his own misguided mission, somewhat kind of on his own to, to kind of elevate himself and become a big deal, and God will show up, and ultimately Saul has to surrender his life. We'll be like Ananias, and we'll argue with God, and we'll say, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to go touch that guy. Do you know who he is? We all have those arguments with God. I don't want to let go of this. Even though I know it's slowly killing me, I'm petrified of letting go of it because it's what makes me feel comfortable. God is calling our lives. He has chosen you, right, to bring about his glory for his purposes. And the chief movement of the Christian life is to surrender our will to his will. God chose both Ananias and he chose both Saul. And the fact that God is drawing you to his presence, he is choosing you, he is calling you, he has taken the initiative, and our whole call is to surrender our heart to his. Each of us has our arguments with God, right? So we've got this movement, God's divine initiative, drawing us to himself. We have this understanding that God calls us and has a purpose for our life. 
Most of us think that our purpose has got to be something grand because we look around the people, look at the people around us and we say, man, they seem to be doing this or they're doing that. A lot of us just feel empty. Like, why am I even taking up space here? The reality is that's not our problem. Just simply say, God, use me. Ananias had no idea what he was doing when he followed the Lord to Judas's house that day on a straight street. For all he knew, he might die. If Ananias was standing here today, do you think he'd look back and he would say, man, God used me to change the entire course of history. God didn't need Ananias. We see God doing things without people all the time. God could have snapped or sneezed or done something and these scales would have fallen from Saul's eyes. He used a blinding light to blind him. He could do something else, but he was doing something in Ananias. Because God's call on our lives is not necessarily to produce things, but to use us, to grow us, and draw us deeper into relationship with him. Surrendering our will to God's will. The final thing I want you to see is this, is that God blinds, but God also restores. One of the most difficult concepts to ever grasp theologically in scripture, I think, kind of originates here for me. All right, and that is this. God blinded Saul. He didn't just allow it. He literally caused Saul to go blind. Saul goes into Damascus and he waits. Broken, blind, he's not eating, he's not drinking. I can only imagine what's going through his mind. He has no idea what's about to unfold. He does not understand at all that God is going to use him in history. He just knows that he is blinded, and he knows that it's by the hand of God. And I wonder what goes through his head, right? This is painful. I mean, God took away his sight, literally took away his sight. This is not the first time we see this happen in Scripture. We often see God allowing people to encounter struggle and suffering and standing beside them while they do, not revealing himself. The guy's walking home from uh, the road to, to Emmaus after the crucifixion, brokenhearted, devastated. Jesus walking alongside of them, not showing them who he is, but letting their hearts be broken, right? The disciples on the boat when the storm rises, they're freaking out, thinking they're going to die. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the back of the boat. And they're petrified, and they're crying. And they wake him up, and they say, don't you care that we are all about to drown? In other words, do you even give a rip? We are petrified here. All through Scripture, we see God allowing and even causing or being a part of difficulty and pain and suffering. All right? Now, I'm not saying that God causes all pain and suffering. I'm just saying that we see evidence in Scripture that God is very much a part of it. That's a really challenging concept to grasp. But I want you to understand what what God was doing in Saul's life. Because think about this. You remember what he said to Ananias? I have to show him what he must suffer for my name. What God was doing in Saul was God was allowing Saul to be blind so that he could see his deeper need for Jesus. God had to remove Saul's eyesight so that he could see that Jesus was what he needed. He had to take away something from his life to demonstrate his deep need for the Lord. 
God was preparing Saul for his calling. He was preparing him for his purpose and for his glory. But in that moment, Saul had no idea. So much of our pain and our suffering and our struggle and our hurt is being used by God to draw us closer to him, to reveal our deeper need for him, and to prepare us for what's to come. But what we are so desperate for is God to take it away. We want God to remove our pain and struggle so desperately that we'll do anything to make that happen. And what I'm trying to show you today is that sometimes that struggle and that pain will be used by God for his glory to prepare your heart, to show you your need for him, and to prepare you for what he is doing in you. And it doesn't always make sense in those moments. We saw this when we studied the book of James. Suffering. And pain is often a gift from the Lord. God is often and always present in it. God blinded Saul for a purpose. Because Saul could not see past himself. And so God removed his eyesight so that Paul could see his own need for Jesus. And God revealed that to him. And he prepared him for what was to come. Think about the things that Saul was going to walk through. He was going to be shipwrecked, bit by snakes, flogged like five times. He was going to be arrested and beaten and tried. He was going to be starving. We see him even given a list of these things. This moment of suffering in Saul's life was preparing him for what God was doing. But you and I are usually so driven by the temporary in our life that we refuse to believe that just maybe God is readying us for something. And in the middle of our suffering, struggle, pain, hurt, fear, failure, whatever it is, that maybe God is demonstrating in us our own need for him. And a key part of this whole thing is that God blinds, but God also restores. Right? So what does God do? At God's perfect right time, he shows up unannounced, right, with this guy named Ananias and restores Paul's sight. But Paul doesn't see the same way he used to, does he? He receives the Holy Spirit, and he's baptized, and his life has changed. Paul sees the world differently now. Most literally sees the world differently now. The Bible tells us that when hearts are broken, God binds up the brokenhearted. What binds up means God heals and restores the brokenhearted. It doesn't mean that God makes everything better. Oftentimes there are scars left behind, and there are reminders left behind, and there's pain left behind, but God binds up what's broken. God is a God of redemption and a God of restoration. And a lot of times the struggle and pain and suffering our life is used by God to demonstrate our need for him and to prepare us for what he has that he has called us to. And it is an incredibly difficult concept to grasp. But the reality is what it tells me is that there is nothing, nothing in this world beyond God's control my pain and suffering and my struggle and fear and failure are not outside of God's plan. Your hurt, your emptiness, your brokenness, your fear, your longing, your failure is not outside of God's plan. So what is God doing in you? What is he showing you, demonstrating? These are the questions that we should be praying. God, what do you want me to see? This hurts. I'm afraid. I'm struggling. Show me what you're doing in me. Stop praying for relief and start praying that God would reveal himself. 
in his infinite, amazing wisdom, shows up in the middle of our lives and demonstrates that his plans are always better, right? It's always a battle of control and surrender that we have with him. But God takes that initiative. God draws us to himself, right? He chose you. He calls you. He chose you and says, I've got a plan for you. I promise. And he calls us in the middle of our struggle to trust him because he is protecting and correcting and teaching and instructing our lives. The faster we can come to grips with the idea that I need to lay down my will to God's will, surrender my heart to his, right? And that maybe in the middle of all this, God is doing something. And so, Lord, I want to trust you. I think the quicker we will see God begin to bring about restoration and redemption in those things. It doesn't mean the pain will go away. Right? Because we have evidence in Scripture that Saul really wrestled with what he did before he came to know Christ. The people that he killed, the stoning of Stephen, all those kind of things. God didn't heal all that. He still wrestled with pain and hurt. But God redeemed it. Right? Made him new. Ultimately, when we share communion together, this is a picture of redemption. You and I are broken. We are sinful. We are disasters. We are much like Saul, misguided on missions of selfishness for our own life and our own desires. And yet God in his infinite, amazing, incredible, beautiful love steps into that and says, wait, no, I love you while you are still sinful and broken. And I have given my son Jesus so that you might have new life. And this table is that picture. It's the picture of God's inbreaking into our world and saying, wait, I've got something so much better for you than what you have for yourself. And he gives us his son, Jesus, to give us life. I mean, this is that picture of redemption. That God takes his own son and allows his life to be broken so that we might have whole life.